Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Cars, Gold and Territories, Trends of Organised Crime in Brazil. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are now in the session 7B of the 24-hour conference on the global organized crime. This is the session where we will discuss cars, goals, and territories, trends of organized crime in Brazil. We have four presenters tonight, or today, depending on the time zone in which you are uh, watching this. So we have uh, Ana Carolina Bragança, Carolina Grillo, Janaina Maldonado, and Gabriel Feltran. They are all young uh, uh, Brazilian researchers who will present cutting edge research on uh, uh, from environmental crimes to uh, illegal cars markets and then uh, wrapping it all up with a, a discussion on, on, on the trends that this new research shows us. So uh, we'll go directly to Ana Carolina Bragança, who will discuss environmental organized crime in the Amazon region. Uh, you have 10 minutes. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you, Luis. Uh, thank you a lot for inviting me and having me, uh, giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of my experience as a federal prosecutor and also as a researcher in the environmental area. Uh, well, for many years in Brazil, environmental criminality uh, was considered unimportant since it dealt uh, with allegedly minor crimes. Uh, that was actually never the case in the Amazon, where deforestation, illegal logging, uh, illegal gold mining and wildlife trafficking have always dwelt uh, on complex criminal organizations. Uh, however, only recently the legal discourse uh, recognized broadly the possibility of environmental crimes uh, being committed in the context of organized crime. Uh, the widespread destruction of the Amazon shed light into the criminal phenomena taking place in the region and called lawyers, uh, prosecutors, judges, environmental, uh, governmental agencies, researchers, NGOs, and so on, to take action to understand what was going on and to develop, uh, uh, sorry, just a minute and to develop appropriate responses. This process of construction of knowledge is still ongoing, but some features can already be identified. And I want to build on three of these features during this exposition in order to offer you an overall idea on environmental organized crime in the Amazon. Um, could we uh, please go to my first slide? The next one, I mean. Thank you a lot. So uh, first, environmental crimes in the Amazon aim at illegally exploiting natural resources such as timber, gold, wildlife, uh, land. These crimes cannot take place effectively unless they are attached to another types of crimes which allow either the exploitation to occur or the exploited natural resources to be sold or used in legal markets. Land grabbing, for instance, usually precedes deforestation. 
after taking possession of public lands, squatters can more easily cut the forest and implement pasture. At the same time, to cover their crimes, squatters will usually use middlemen and fraud documents concerning the possession of the land. If you try to identify in public systems the holder of the land, for instance, you will not find the squatter, but the middleman. And it's not unusual to see corruption contributing to this process with public ser servants inserting unprecise data in public systems to camouflage uh, the squatter's identity. A big farm can be uh, fraudulently divided into lots of smaller farms all registered in middlemen's names since legalizing small properties is easier and the holders can be exempt from in-person uh, inspections. That's one technique for allowing land grabbing to generate legal property titles, con uh, concealing the initial invasion of public lands and the environmental crimes uh, committed thereafter. And uh, I tried to kind of show this process using that slide, but I must say that I'm a lawyer, not a designer, so I'm not very good with uh, slides designing i hope it's uh it is clearly uh, clear enough uh, it, but you can see the idea is that you can see this process ongoing through the slide could we go to the next slide please so uh the second feature i would like to mention concerns the gravity center of environmental crimes in the amazon which is the introduction of the exploited natural resources and the formal economy so uh, most exploited natural resources do not stay in the Amazon. They are addressed actually to huge markets, including South Brazil, but also Europe, the US and East Asia. Uh, but let me be very clear, these products do not get to these places as illegal products. When they arrive either in Southern Brazil or in Europe, for instance, they look pretty much legal. Uh, the main mechanisms whereby the transformation of illegal natural resources into legal natural resource, resources uh, take, uh, takes place are quite similar across different types of environmental crimes. Basically, uh, right after uh, the illegal extraction, fraudulent documents entail the incorporation of gold timber, lands, even some types of uh, wildlife into legal markets. An illegal gold miner, uh, for instance, will sell his gold to a financial institution authorized to buy gold, formally declaring that the mineral comes from a legal source. As there are not stringent supply chain controls regarding gold, the declaration is assumed to be true even if there is not enough evidence of the real gold origin and that amount of gold coming from an illegal source will be considered legal thereafter. Uh, if later this gold is exported and we, and we want to know if the exporter knew about the illegal origin, we will need to prove somehow that he was aware of the fraudulent mechanisms taking place right in the beginning of the supply chain. Could we go to the next slide, please? And this same kind of process uh, goes also for timber. Timber is exploited uh, illegally and immediately, immediately disguised as legal, for instance, through frauds concerning the amount of wood that a certain authorized project is entitled to cut. 
Imagine you want to legally exploit timber. You must present uh, to the environmental agency an assessment of how much timber is available in the area you're going to work on. Based on the available amount of timber, the environmental agency emits permits entitling the entrepreneur to exploit and commercialize a certain amount of environmental resources. Uh, if you overestimate the amount of timber in an area and either you trick or corrupt the environmental agency, you receive extra entitlements that you can use to cover illegal timber. Usually that happens right in the beginning of the supply chain and just as for gold, if you want to prove that an exporter is aware of the illegal origins, you need to prove that he knew about the frauds that were going on when the timber reached the legal market. Uh, these two examples lead to a conclusion that has been directed in the efforts of the prosecution service in Brazil. The money uh, coming from illegal gold or illegal timber exploitation is laundered in the beginning of the supply chain by means of mixing uh, the illegal products with legal ones in the context of the same economic activity. Um, you do not use, for example, a laundry to wash illegal timber, timber money, for example. You use a legal sawmill to do so. And this implies that previously to money laundering, the natural resources are then self-laundered and their environmental crimes differ a lot from the other kinds of, uh, other kinds of crime. Brazilian law admits as money laundering the laundering of any product of a crime, not only money then we have been charging criminals for the laundering of gold, timber, and even lands. And up to now, all uh, of our accusations were admitted. And we had at least one condemnation on timber laundering. Finally, as a development of the second feature, um, and we can go to the next slide, I would like to mention on the idea of following the money as a method for investigation, that if you want to know if an actor further on in the supply chain contributed to environmental crimes, you cannot establish so looking solely the money flow, unless the actor sends money directly to the illegal actors, such as gold miners, and, and you see that there in the second arrow. That is not what usually happens though. Usually exporters will send money to the sawmill, for example, who received and laundered the timber uh, or to the financial institution who bought the illegal gold. Both these enterprises operate transforming the natural resources from illegal to legal, but they do so on their own. Consequently, you need additional evidence demonstrating that exporter was aware uh, that his commercial partner was incurring in frauds. Analyzing the money path can contribute to that, but usually it will be not enough to establish the participation of the exporter in the crimes. Uh, to sum up, investigating and uh, prosecuting environmental crimes in the context of organized crime in the Amazon is not obvious, particularly if you want to build strategies that can effectively lead to condemnations. The burden of proof is on us um, investigators and prosecutors and pres presumptions will not hold in courts. So we need to be better than uh, than that, and to do so, we need to take in account, into account the features that I mentioned. Remarkably, we need to understand how crimes are designed in the particular Amazonian context, and to know that not every usual investigation method uh, applies else uh, applied elsewhere will work here. 
adaptations will be required. And strategic thinking is the key for reaching optimal results. And that's where we opt to aim at. Oh, so uh, these are my initial comments. I thank you a lot. And I'm just eager to answer any questions you might have. Thank you very, very much, Anna, especially for the uh, very complete presentation in such a short time. And thank you also for committing yourself to the 10 minutes time limit. And uh, so we will go straight to uh, the presentation by Carolina Grillo, who will present some research on territorial disputes between uh, criminal groups in, in the city of Rio de Janeiro. Hi, everyone. Um, I hope you're listening. Well, um, thank you for the opportunity of being here. I'll present here today an overall view of a research study conducted by Geni, which is the Grupo de Estudos dos Novos Ilegalismos from Fluminense Federal University, together with Observatório das Metrópolis from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. The, university's, uh, the research is called The Expansion of Milícias in Rio de Janeiro, Political and Economic Advantages. Our study addresses the political and economic basis of the so-called milícias in the city of Rio de Janeiro and the effects of government regulation of legal and illegal markets on their expansion. The period under study was between the year of 2007 and 2020 of remarkable expansion of militias. In the last couple of years, the armed power of the so-called militias over territories, populations, and markets have expanded in the city of Rio de Janeiro. Since the 1980s, the crime issue in Rio had focused the territorial disputes between well-armed drug factions the facções or commandos, like Comando Vermelho, Terceiro Comando Puro, and Amigos dos Amigos, and their clashes with the police. But lately, the phenomenon of racketeering militias seem to have grown in importance. According to the map of armed groups in Rio de Janeiro, in 2019, militias controlled almost 60% of the territories under armed groups' dominion. This map was elaborated by Geni together with uh, Fogo Cruzado, Disque Denuncia, Núcleo de Estudos da Violência from University of São Paulo and Pista News. In the early mid-2000s, militias were praised by several public authorities as a novel community policy model to be replicated in squatter settlement called favelas and poor neighborhoods also. Uh, that were under control of armed groups of drug traffickers. Although known to be criminal groups involved in extortion, protection rackets, and death squads, militias were praised uh, by local press as a viable and less violent alternative to the territorial control exerted by drug factions. However, this image was left aside after the kidnapping and torture of a team of reporters from the daily newspaper Ujia by militia members in 2008. This episode caused a significant turning point in press coverage on the theme and provided the opportunity for installing a legisl legislative investigation committee called CPI das Milícias in the Rio de Janeiro State Legislature Assembly called Alerge to inquire on the participation of state legislators in militias. The so-called CPI das Milícias 
had been solicited in 2007 by the former state legislator Marcelo Freixo, but was formed only after the reporters were kidnapped and tortured. Thereafter, the participation of law enforcement officers and local politicians in milices became widely known and their rackets unveiled. These armed criminal groups illegally control and extort the essential services market in poor neighborhoods, such as the supply of water, electric energy, cooking gas and cable TV, public transport, security, and as I'll, I'll demonstrate housing as well. It is now widespread known that militias as exercise their control over territories, markets, and populations through coercive practice like uh, threats, beating, torture, and murder, mur murder. It is also known that militias violent dispute territories among themselves and against drug factions, and that they profit from drug sales as well. The peculiarity of militias is mainly the participation of government officials from both civil and military police agents, uh, agencies, elected representatives, municipal guards, military firefighters, uh, etc., as board and staff members, and that hardly ever happens in drug factions. This ambiguous relation between militias and government favors the ability of these racketeering groups to increase and spread their influence, occupying vast territories and electing representatives of their choosing for important political offices in all public spheres, like the municipality, the state, and even federal government. To access the political and economic basis of militia expansion, this study was based on the map of criminal armed groups in Rio de Janeiro, as I've spoken before, and used as key variables, uh, one, police rates, and two, real estate activity. Our research results indicate that in comparison to other criminal groups from Rio de Janeiro, militias were subject to reduced police repression and the territories they control show an increased real estate activity. The data produced sustain our hypothesis that the targeting of use of force by state government and the regulation and inspection of real estate markets have favored the expansion of militias. Based on the map of armed groups, we proceeded to the georeferencing of information from the other two databases. One, the police rates databases from Geni, from, from Minnesota Federal University, my research group. And two, uh, the uh, data on unitary re uh, real estate permits. And three, location of housing pro projects from Minha Casa Minha Vida Federal Housing Program. And four, uh, the legalized real estate units. Uh, the obje objectives were to verify how the distribution of police rates among territories controlled by each of the known criminal armed groups that operate in Rio de Janeiro and to verify the relation between the intensity of real estate activity at city districts and the type of predominant armed groups in each district. In order to access malicious political advantage, we chose police rates as an indicator because Rio de Janeiro police strategy for controlling crime has been based on the routinization of police special operations aimed at seizing drugs, arms, and killing or arresting crime suspects in favelas and poor neighborhoods. Armed with assault rifles and on board of armored vehicles, including helicopters, police officers engage in unpredictable urban battles against armed criminals who often resist police offensives. 
Uh, the sudden shootouts that result from police raids in favelas disrupt the dwellers' routines by exposing them to the crossfire. The centrality of police raids for the control of crime in Rio de Janeiro collaborates for the exorbitant records of death due to police action uh, in Rio de Janeiro. According to official data, only in 2019, 1,814 people were killed by police officers on duty in the state of Rio de Janeiro. In territories controlled by militias, despite the various uh, collected accounts of extortion and violence, dwellers describe their neighborhoods as tranquilo, as peaceful, quiet. However, official uh, homicide statistics indicate that neighborhoods known to be controlled by militias, like Santa Cruz and Campo Grande, are the most violent in the city of Rio de Janeiro. Our hypothesis for interpreting the perception of tranquility, regardless of the high homicide rates, is that it alludes to the low incidence of armed clashes with the police. The comparison between the Jenny Uf police rates database and the map of armed criminal groups allows us to have a better measure of the unequal distribution of police force among territories controlled by different criminal groups. Our data show the neighborhoods with disputed territories represent 35.1% of total neighborhoods and concentrate 45.5% of police raids. Comando Vermelho is the predominant group in 26.4% of neighborhoods, but 40.9% of police raids were conducted in Comando Vermelho areas. However, militias are the predominant groups uh, in almost 30% of neighborhoods in which only 6.5% uh, of police raids happen. In summary, frequency of police raids is higher in territories controlled by drug factions, particularly Comando Vermelho, and lower in territories controlled by militias. Hence, the data produced allow us to conclude that militias are groups in political advantage and that at Comando Vermelho is the main group in political disadvantage. In order to access militias economical advantages, we analyzed official data concerning real estate markets from Rio de Janeiro City Secretariat, Secretariat of Urbanism, um, SMU, I'll be calling, okay, uh, from the SMU database, where all types of real estate permits and legalization processes are registered. Rio de, Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro city government also maintains lenient laws intended for facilitating the legalization of irregular constructions, thus to estimate the spatial distribution of both, both legal and illegal real estate activities. We use the SMU data on granted unitary permits for commercial and residential edification and land subdivision in data on legalization applications approved. We observe that districts were uh, the number of permits granted was higher were precisely the districts where large territorial portions were under are under control of militias, as Campo Grande and Jacarepaguá. In the analyzed period, local government defined Campo Grande, Santa Cruz, and Guaratiba as assisted, as assisted areas for subsidized housing construction. Therefore, concentrating most of Minha Casa Minha Vida subsidized housing project for low-income families in areas controlled by militias. 
e also identified significant superposition between militias and Minha Casa Minha Vida condos, suggesting that militias are taking advantage of the subsidized housing program in order to expand their rackets. More than that, just charging security fees, the Minha Casa Minha Vida program provided militias with new sources of income uh, from the booming real estate markets that often unfold from, uh, unfold from housing social policies. Militias uh, uh, collected stores with administration taxes of 10 to 50% over apartment sales and rents. Many apartment, apartments become property of militias members through expulsion and or murder of legitimate owners. Essential urban services like water, electric energy, cable TV, internet, and kitchen gas are overtaxed and or monopolized by enterprises associated with militias. In the common areas of the condos, militias build small houses and shops for rental, illegally privatizing them. The spurious interaction between state power and or public policies with militias racketeering groups is even more evident in the market of irregular constructions. We have considered the data and approved uh, applications of legalization of construction of constructions as a proxy of illegal real estate activity because it refers to subdivisions and edifications uh, conducted irregularly that were later legalized benefiting from the above mentioned, uh, the previously mentioned Lanyon real estate laws. We also identified a superposition of- uh, okay, I'm concluding. Okay, okay, okay. We also identified a superposition of militia presence in districts with higher number of legalized units, again, emphasizing that districts of Campo Grande and Jacarepaguá. Our data indicate that legal mechanisms offered by a lo local government for legalizing regular constructions have been used by militias for expanding their real estate uh, market activities. To conclude this presentation, I may state that our data sustain the research hypothesis that militias have benefited from a double advantage, political and economic, over, criminal, uh, over the rival criminal factions. On one side, the low incidence of police raids in the neighborhoods they control. On the other side, the increase of profits from real estate, real estate activity obtained from occupying public lands, offering protection to legal construction and mediating uh, real estate transactions in neighborhoods that show intense real estate activity. Thank you very much, and sorry about the time. Well, thank you very much, Carolina. Sorry for uh, interrupting your presentation, but I'm sure we will have plenty of um, time to discuss it later. And uh, I'll have some questions for you. <laughs> and um, so we'll go straight to, to Janaina, who will present the latest findings on the on the ongoing research on, on transactional markets of illicit vehicles. So it will be very interesting. Thank you very okay. much, Janaina. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me and uh, really nice to be here around really uh, good and nice colleagues. And also thanks for the audience that is watching us right now and to the organization. I will share my screen now. Uh, here we go. You can see it? Full screen? Yes. Yes. So, uh, oh, first slide, yes. So I will present an overview of our uh, collective research that has been conducted by a group of 11 Brazilian ethnographers coordinated by Gabriel Feltran that's also here 
over the past few years. And uh, second, I will uh, focus on an experience of state regulation of an illegal market. So uh, to start, I would like to, to explain a bit why researching stolen cars. So uh, the stolen car market, unlike the illegal uh, drugs and weapons market, is a quantifiable uh, circuit, especially uh, through the massive production of data by insurance companies. Uh, and at the same time, we found a number of stories in our uh, distinct ethnographies in which the car was central to understanding situations of violence and the circulation of money and uh, goods. And also, as you can see in this table, uh, the dimension of the stolen cars uh, in, in Brazil and especially in Sao Paulo. Uh, so uh, methodologically, I think uh, we, it's very, very interesting for me how we, we decided to do this research. We reconstructed the journeys of five stolen cars uh, by the tradition of following objects. And we began to question what are the techniques used in armed robberies and thefts and who are their victims and who are the thieves? What are their stories and what are the situations in which they happen? Once a car is stolen, what happens to it? We follow two of the responses to the, this criminal activity, uh, the response of the state through police action. Uh, so in the last few years, for example, the Sao Paulo police killed two people a day. 60% of these homicides uh, had a stolen car at the crime scene. Also, the response to the insurance companies with the massive expansion of car insurance and their political influence. So we reconstructed these journeys uh, through a collection of ethnographic scenes and secondary data collected between 2017 and 2019 in Sao Paulo, but also in cities like Berlin, London and Paris, and uh, as well as on the Brazilian borders with Paraguay and Bolivia. Um, and we talked to insurance companies, uh, thieves in different positions in the criminal world, people who have had cars stolen, auctioners, police officers, politicians, and so on. So we came across five priority destinations that these cars assume after being stolen. First, the dismantling stories for later sale of their parts. Uh, second, the national borders for exchange for cocaine-based paste that supplies the internal Brazilian uh, market and also the international market in the big European cities. A third, car, car auctions, insurance companies, and the streets of uh, favelas for private use. Alternatively, the stolen car is also used to commit other crimes. So for all these places and people, we asked among other two questions. How does it work? and how much does it cost? That was the two questions that uh, guided us in our research. So the moment the car is stolen, different actors started to make money. In distribution, its distribution, however, is unequal. More than this, the distribution of violence that runs through this market is also unequal and inversely proportional to the money that circulates. So more risk, more violence, less money, less risk, no exposure to violence, more money. And theoretically, for us, we radically assume the perspective that in the city of Sao Paulo, uh, not only the state produces order, but different actors claim for the regulation of our urban spaces, coexisting, co-producing and clashing in the daily life of our cities. Central among them are for us the world of crime, the world of 
state practices and with it, the increasingly autonomous police forces and the word of the churches, especially the Pentecostal uh, churches. These different regimes, uh, what we call normative regimes, are different regimes of action with different grammars of interpretation of the social world that coexist in a plural order in which subjects occupy different positions in words that are also uh, distinct. So through this framework, we look at the production of inequality and violence inscribed in the stolen car circuit and its transnational connections. And then uh, I would like to focus uh, on one of the axes of this research, the state regulation of illegal and illegal market, which I worked uh, closely. Oh, it's a mistake here, I'm sorry. I don't know why I got so smoke, but okay. <laughs> uh, so I would like to focus on the, the state regulation of illegal market, which I worked closely with two colleagues, uh, Luana Mota and Juliana Alcantara. Uh, more specifically in the regulation of one of the most important destinations of stolen cars in Sao Paulo, that is the dismantling stores and the sale of used parts. So vehicle uh, theft and armed robbery have increased its image as a public problem in Brazil since 2003. In addition, one of the most profitable destinations for stolen cars, the dismantling stores, has become central to the discussion. Dismantling stores are spaces historically considered linked to illegality. However, was uh, after 2003 for at least 10 years that the dispute for the regulation of this market becomes more intense. The logic was simple. By preventing or, and or regulating the auto parts sales chain, uh, theft and armed robbery intended to supply this market uh, would no longer be profitable. Two options for the regulation were presented with the official goal of curbing uh, vehicle theft and uh, robbery in Sao Paulo. Uh, first, the incineration, incineration of stolen cars recovered by the police or insurance companies that would interrupt the commercial uh, circuit. And second, the regulation of this activity of dismantling a car and selling these auto parts uh, through bureaucratic procedures. The first option of the incineration was not successful because different actors recognized the car dismantling as a highly profitable market. A car, just to give an example, after being dismantled, can maximize its value by up to five times. So after the disputes uh, between different sectors, auctioners, insurance companies, owners of dismantling stores, politicians linked, linked to the insurance market and also to the police sectors, the differences between them were accommodated. And in 2014, the law that would regulate the trade of illegal auto parts was passed, the so-called dismantling law. The everyday experience of uh, the law that we have observed in ethnographically allows us to discuss both the regulation of illegal markets, an important topic that remains understudied, and uh, the unintended political effects of market regulation. The term regulation, as we, we use it here, is not simply imposed by the state from the top down, rather it constitutes a play between the rules of the state and how different normative regimes respond to those rules. Regulation arises out of everyday power conflicts and interactions between ordinary people and specialized actors in economic activities, laws, bureaucratic structures, 
they state religious activities and criminal activities, among others. With this in mind and heading towards the, way, the end, two things are important. It's not enough for a law to be passed for it to have any practical effect. There needs to be a confluence of actors and regulatory instruments. The 2014 law had both. One technological device was key to its, its implementation. That was the, the trop, tracking uh, labels that are, you can see in the picture. Each label of this uh, made of destructible white vinyl bears a QR code that anyone with a cell phone reader can uh, scan uh, to learn the origin of, of this, the, the auto part. So this goes in each part of the car that will be uh, put in the market. So moreover, uh, laws and police uh, do not necessarily serve to disrupt criminal circuits as we see with this, this research but they, they serve more to regulate and manage illegalities. What we saw was not uh, the end of vehicle uh, theft in Sao Paulo, despite its significant drop that still needs to be understood, but the reproduction of stratification and exclusion in a now legalized uh, market. The labels brought the appearance of legality to this market. The bureaucratic procedures did not allow everyone who operated in the sector to be legalized, but only a few who possessed economic and technical capital. One of the legal requirements, for example, to operate in this uh, market is not to have criminal uh, record. Legal and illegal, therefore, which were no longer binary uh, poles, now have their scales rearranged. Those who do not fit in now operate illegally. Others operate on a legalized facade that takes advantage of gaps in regulatory procedures. So these labels are placed on some cars, registered on others, duplicated, counterfeited. Moreover, they operate as a techno-political device, a technology designed to operate political goals and which operates by neutralizing politics to a facade of technicality. Other establishments operate also uh, in a completely uh, legal way. All of them, however, and that's what is really uh, also uh, interesting for us, all of them, however, tell us that one actor has strengthened uh, in this process, not the police, but the police officer, those who operate the daily uh, supervision and fiscalization of these establishments have begun to control the exchange, exchange of protection. And uh, within the continuum between legal and legal, all of them pay the police officer to operate in peace. So violence, uh, therefore, also in this market is reorganized. If there is regulation, those who don't fit in are because they don't want to. So the, the punishment can be more severe. However, a certain aesthetic reorganizes uh, uh, the violence and the boundaries between legal and illegal in this market. Labels, the location of the establishment, cleanliness, and uh, uh, for example, if they have um, one label, uh, a lot of parts in the entrance with a lot of labels, the police officers say, oh, it's all right, okay. And all of these reprodu reproduce through legal procedures 
uh, that are not neutral at all. Uh, the already durable inequalities, to quote uh, Charlie Steely, that run throughout our cities. I think what I wanted to say is more that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Janaina. And um, so to, to conclude this first round of presentations, I would like to invite Gabriel Feltran to present his, his findings on his latest research and also if he could uh, debate the links between these, the specific markets, illicit markets that were presented now and uh, the other forms of organized crime that we have discussed in Brazil. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thanks, Luis, for the invitation. Pleasure to be here with you and, and colleagues. And I'm, my presentation is a kind of continuation of Janaina's presentation because we worked together in this big project about uh, legal illegal markets uh, or legal illegal borders of uh, vehicle markets uh, in Brazil. And now it became a bit international. So we are starting a, a the following project uh, on vehicle circulation, uh, informal vehicle circulation around the world. And uh, in this specific presentation, I'm gonna uh, present a kind of uh, border between vehicle and, and cocaine uh, markets in Brazil and how it uh, become, how it turns into a lot of money, a lot of global money. So the first part of, part of my presentation is quite ethnographic. Uh, telling stories uh, of uh, fieldwork, and and second part is more uh, analytical stuff. Okay, so our research question to this uh, whole project was how are São Paulo's inequalities and violence being reproduced within transnational illegal market chains? Okay, and we we've been uh, doing fieldwork for a long time in São Paulo's uh, urban outskirts. But for this uh, specific uh, project, we've been studying journeys uh, of uh, vehicles, people, families, organizations from 2015 until today. And we are trying to compare both locally and internationally. Uh, as I don't have much time, I'm, I'm gonna uh, start this story with, the, with Samuel. Samuel is a guy uh, who I, I met in 2005 when he was seven years old. Uh, Samuel is uh, someone who stole a car when he uh, had 18 years old and I was still doing field work with his family. Okay, Samuel is Yvette's grandson and Yvette is someone who I've been following and Janaina also knows very well um, in, 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 in the whole family story is being studied for us for a long time. Yvette had eight sons. Four of them uh, decided to, to be part of the criminal world. And Samuel is one, is a son of a worker, not a not a, of a criminal in this uh, in this family. But Samuel in 2016 told me about a crime he 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 made uh, with some colleagues, and I found uh, a, a YouTube video that is exactly why 
exactly the same story, the same type of crime he described it to me he was uh, he did in this uh, 2016. After stealing a car, the car, they will also steal, they will also pick and take those things. You see, personal stuff, cell phones, and, and wallet, and etc. Because normally they earn much more money with this small stuff than with the car, because they are hired to, to buy, to, to steal this car. Okay? So in 40 seconds, Samuel earned what he earns in a month working as a, a, a very low uh, skilled worker in Sao Paulo. And the same as a, a, the equivalent of a minimum salary, a minimum wage in, in Sao Paulo. Okay? He goes to the shopping mall after the theft with $250 in his pocket and he buys global brands, okay? Oakley, Subway, McDonald's for him and for his friends. So the illegal money he had in his pocket becomes legal money. And as we pay a lot of taxes in Brazil in consumption, he is also paying taxes, okay? When the legal money comes to legal markets by consumption. The Toyota Hilux, Samuel was told, is recovered by the insurance companies, half part of the, so, the Sorry to interrupt you again, Gabriel. I think we, we are not seeing your presentation. When you put full screen, we don't see it. If you put, if you not put it full screen, we can see. So maybe okay, you should just leave it I, I without putting in full screen. Okay. So the, the, the Hilux is recovered by the insurance company, okay? And when it's recovered, it is part of the calculations of the insurance company. So for a single indemnization paid by insurance company, they earn 100 premium uh, insurance sold, okay? so. The, the insurance company earns more or less $200,000 for each indemnization they pay. Normally, because they sell the, uh, they sell the, 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 the Toyota Hilux or the cars, they recover in auctions. And the auctioneer earns 5% of the price, okay? So the auctioneer earns 10 times more than Samuel. And during our research, one of those auctioneers became senator of the Republic in the same year that Samuel was being shot by the police, okay? With the stolen high looks, he earns 10 times more than Samuel. He became senator of the Republic, not from his state, but from a, uh, uh, a state in the north of the country because he was someone, a substitute, someone who could replace a senator in a moment he needs, okay? So he paid for this, he had no vote and he became a senator of the Republic. Samuel has exactly the profile of the victims of homicide in Brazil. He's a man, he's black, 
he uh, is a young guy and he is a young unskilled operator of transnational illegal economies uh, as the vehicle economies and the drug economies, but he lives in a favela. The prison inmates have exactly, exactly the same profile as uh, Samuel. What could we see when we go a bit further and follow this Toyota Hilux out of Sao Paulo, okay? As Janaina told us, we have different destinations for those stolen cars, but in this case, we reconstructed the journey of a Toyota Hilux that came to the border, to the Bolivian border with Brazil, and there it is exchanged by five kilos of cocaine uh, hydrochloride. Cocaine hydrochloride is the cocaine for exportation. It's not for internal markets, it's for exportation. It is transported back to Sao Paulo uh, and to ports and airports in Brazil normally. And, it, and they use truck drivers, legal and uh, companies, legal truck drivers to, to do uh, these uh, transportations. Look at this. When they use only cash to, to, to make this uh, negotiation to buy drugs in the border, they could have a 500% five, uh, of percent increase of, of price increase, 500% of price increase if they use cash. But when they use a stolen car, as currency, it will be three times uh, more, okay? So that's why uh, car theft and cocaine trade are so intertwined. And, and, and that's why they are uh, in, in last uh, five, six, seven years, why it became a big, a very big business uh, in, in global markets, okay? So cocaine uh, made it possible and the accumulation that comes from cocaine is feeding a lot of uh, different markets in Brazil as uh, what, for example, uh, as the gold markets or the mining markets or, or timber markets that uh, Ana Carolina was uh, presenting to us. And of course it's feeding also the militia expansion in, in Rio as uh, Carolina was uh, telling us. So when we were uh, doing field work in Berlin for this uh, research, we realized that there's a lot of Brazilian cocaine there, but Brazilian cocaine there is a bit more expensive because one gram of cocaine in this Gorlitzer Park was being sold by $115. It means that one Hilux stolen by uh, Samuel in Brazil uh, put five kilos of cocaine, for example, in Berlin, and it means $475,000. Not $60,000, but for, uh, for uh, almost six, $600,000, I mean, 10 times more, okay? Do you mind wrapping up? Sorry? For first session? Do you mind wrapping up your... Uh, yeah, 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 that's the, that's the final slide, okay? So uh, 
Samuel had got 250, the auctioneer 3,000, the insurance company almost 200,000, the international wholesale dealers uh, more than $100,000 and $400,000 for uh, the, the German uh, dealers. That's why the German police is being part of this. The, the, the German police, we, we, we had news from uh, recent uh, days telling us about this. So what we are trying to, to, to tell is that legal and illegal stuff are completely, completely uh, entangled, but also that local and marginal uh, markets are, are, are also feeding uh, global accumulation, both legally and illegally. Thanks very much for, uh, for uh, hearing us. Sorry for the technical problems. Uh, those paintings are uh, from a Brazilian artist called uh, Eder Oliveira. And those are the, the, the books and special issues we, we've been producing last years. And this is my contact. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gabriel. And uh, I'm sure we will have um, additional time to discuss and maybe you can just show your videos in a, in a later stage uh, uh, in this presentation. Well, um, we have 15 minutes for our discussion. We will take questions from the audience from the Q&A session in the, in the program. And we can also take questions from anyone who desires to do so. Um, just send us a message. And uh, to start the discussion, I would just like to ask two questions to begin. One to Ana Carolina and other to Carolina. And um, uh, to Ana Carolina, she just presented uh, a very interesting um, uh, description of, of how the, the environmental crime works and the differences between, uh, between them and, uh, and the, the other more, more famous, as I can could say, illegal markets here. And, uh, but I would like to, to ask her if um, she, she could detail uh, how the connections between the illegal markets in environmental crimes and the public, uh, the public power, not not just the the specific structures on on controlling the environmental crimes, just as the IBAMA in Brazil, but I mean more political uh, officers like um, uh, uh, local politicians and and state authorities, and especially now the even the federal government presents uh, uh, um, uh, almost declared tolerance on, on, on environmental crimes in the, in the Amazon region. And I'd like her to, if, if you could um, uh, give us a glimpse on, on, the, on the relation between this, this, the state's tolerance and, and in a more higher political level and uh, the environmental crimes. And um, to Carolina, I would also like to I'd like you to, to, to tell the audience on, on the experiences with the, the Supreme Court mandated ban on, 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 on 
police operations that were put on place in the pandemics. And I think you should maybe if you in a minute or two to, to tell what it how it worked and 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 how it how, how effective it was and it is in the last in the last weeks and months. And after that I will just come back with another questions for Janine and Gabriel and, and also to 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 provide you with questions from judges. Thank you, Luis. Um, I, I believe I should begin. <laughs> the first question was addressed to me. So, um, well, on uh, politicians and environmental crimes and organized crime um, as a whole, uh, what I want to mention is that historically, most of these environmental crimes were not considered by local populations as crimes. So if you take uh, the, if you ask, for example, in rural areas in the Amazon, if illegal gold mining is a, a crime, no one will tell you so, because uh, people do not consider this uh, kind of um, crimes, serious crimes to be addressed by law. And actually, uh, these activities, illegal gold mining and illegal logging, uh, land grabbing and deforestation, they are quite intertwined with economic activities in these rural areas. So many cities uh, are captured by crime in the sense that they have their economies depending on uh, those uh, on those chains of timber or, or of gold or of uh, deforestation and land grabbing, and these uh, feature this goes further uh, into um, making local politicians also connected to these activities, and this is something that begins at the local uh, sphere. But then it uh, keeps going into regional uh, powers, for example, state deputies, uh, governors, um, many of them actually do incentivate, we could say that, these activities or at least are um, act in the mission, not addressing them as they should. And uh, what I see in the federal government in the last uh, few years is that uh, these um, local and regional powers have finally reached or found their voices in the federal um, in the federal arena so these voices which were not uh, heard in the past now they are being heard in our parliament and they are um, for example conducing the debate on uh, the legalization of gold mining in indigenous lands for example or on how uh, on how should we legalize or not areas uh, which have been invaded public lands, uh, lands that have been invaded uh, by criminals um, so uh, what I see is, is basically that, that these uh, economies which are captured in a way by crime, they have uh, found uh, an opportunity to be heard in the current pol political moment in Brazil. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Carolina, could you address the question? Okay, of course. Um, I would like to thank you for the question. It's a pleasure to talk about the uh, BPF. Um, 
In fact, first I would have to explain what it is. It's a, an allegation of non-compliance with the fundamental precept, which we call a DPF 635, or also called the ADPF das favelas. Well, uh, the human rights violation perpetrated by the state of Rio de Janeiro during, during police raids in favelas and poor neighborhoods have been the object of this ADPF 635 at the Brazilian Supreme Court. It was filed by the Brazilian Socialist Party, the BSB, in November 2019. Um, but the judicial process has counted with support from the Rio de Janeiro State Public Defendant's Office, several human rights NGOs, and several social movements, especially movements from uh, victims' relatives, uh, from police violence and favelas movements. And the Grupo de Estudos dos Novos Ilegalismos, GENI, from Fluminense Federal University, has collaborated with the instruction of the process by elaborating research reports, evaluating the impacts of police raids. And uh, we have found some striking results uh, concerning the police raids in favelas because well, the problem had al already been posed by several social movements um, over the last decades uh, because the dwellers' routines often uh, disrupted and the uh, health services are forced to, to, to close and uh, uh, dwellers are among stray bullets lying on the floor to protect themselves and children are often killed. Uh, we already knew that, but during the ADPF, there was uh, uh, the pandemics and a child was killed, João Pedro, inside the house in a moment when children were not allowed to go to school because of the pandemics. So uh, some um, cautions that had been protocoled by the, the, in the ADPF, uh, soliciting some security measures like, uh, I don't know how to say that in English, medida uh, cautelar, some caution measures. And it was conceded by the Supreme Court, a caution measure um, suspending police raids during the pandemics. So uh, the, it was not a suspension. The police raids were only restricted to exceptional situations. And since we had already a database, database on police raids, we contributed by producing data on uh, the conduction of operations and the obedience or the compliance or non-compliance to the, the judicial decision that restricted police rates. So we found out that in the, four, uh, the first four months of the restriction, uh, the police rates reduced. In fact, indeed, and hundreds of people were not killed. There was a, a decrease in, in deaths due to police action. But later, um, the, the Supreme Court decision was disrespected by the local government and uh, the killings just went on and police raids have been conducted as if there were no Supreme Court decision. And lately we had several massacres in Rio, like for instance, the Jacarezinho Chacina, the massacre in Jacarezinho with 28 people uh, killed uh, during a police action, 
And, uh, and last week, eight people were killed in San Gonzalo in another police raid uh, conducted uh, as a vendetta for the death of uh, police officers. And uh, what's been asked in the ADPF is just that the police uh, just that the police uh, abides to the to the some protocols that they have elaborated uh, and to abide to some other protocols, some obvious things like not shooting from an helicopter in a very densely populated site or like not using schools and uh, help facilities as a base for for military action. So, uh, or for instance, bringing together an ambulance since there are so often people, so often people are killed or injured during these police raids. So um, this process is still in trial, on trial, and there will, there will be an, a new phase of the trial tomorrow. And it's very important to keep the pressure. So because this is a very, very important case uh, for the protection of human rights in Rio de Janeiro and for the reduction of deaths due to police action. Thank you very much, Carolina. We have like five minutes left and I would like to have 10 things to ask Juliana and Gabriel. So just keep it short and uh, ask you to keep short as well. So, but we will we'll just be cut off from the transmission, so there's no time for us to, to go further. So I'd like to ask Janaina about this huge increase of value of, of that you showed between the, 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 the full, the, the, the regular car and the dismantled car. It's something very impressive to, 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 that you described. I'd like to, if you could just uh, describe it a little more for us. And to Gabriel, all the uh, very impressive increase in value is when you just uh, uh, showed the, the, the value of a kilo or a gram of cocaine in the border on Brazil and Bolivia and how it will be sold in, in, in Berlin. So it, it shows that there's a huge amount of money being generated in the supply chain. And it, it, how does it work with the, with the financial um, institutions? How, how, does it, uh, how, how is it possible that such a, a huge amount of money being just slicked within the legal financial markets and um, why the repression is still in the, in the production uh, uh, areas. So if you could just uh, describe this for us, and thank you very much. I'll just say goodbye right now so that you can just use all time for you. Thank you very much. Thank you all, and thank you for all the audience. Janaina and Gabriel, thank you. Okay, I'll try to be really fast then, uh, because uh, the thing is now when we recover a car or when this car goes to, to, to be dismantled, uh, this car is fruit of accidents or recovered by insurance companies. So the value of the car, uh, it's already decreasing now. And then when they are recovered, uh, the, the parts that are sold, they have a really high value uh, in the market because uh, the price is made by the comparison between the price of a new uh, part that, for example, is in a, um, how is in, in English? Uh, Concessionaria? Uh, car shop, official car shop. Uh, official car shop. And, and, and then this is uh, also the illegal uh, part that is, uh, the price is really uh, low. So uh, the range of prices are different depending depending on the legality of the shops. So, but 
the, the thing is when you sell the car, the entire car, a fruit of uh, a stole a criminal activity or uh, accident, the price is not that, that, that high anymore, it's not the full price. But then when you cut the car in several parts, then the price goes really up because these parts, they are um, entirely, entirely functional. No? And so really gains uh, earn value uh, when they are um, scrapped. Okay, Gabriel, thank you, Janine. Yeah, thanks, uh, Luis. So if we think that in Colombia, one gram of cocaine is $1 in, and in, in Berlin, it's more than $100. And sometimes in Northern Europe, it would be $150 a gram. We are talking a, a, about much money. When it became something that some criminal organizations could regulate in large parts of this chain, it became very, very profitable. So I think, uh, as we as we saw one one stolen car in brazil becomes 60000 dollars but we had uh, in this year in brazil 500000 stolen cars <laughs> so it's it is not marginal in global economy anymore i think cocaine changed the scale uh, of illegal participation in global economies when it became a part of, uh, of the business of huge criminal organizations as the PCC, as the CV, as the uh, Mexican cartels and uh, Colombian cartels and uh, African uh, criminal groups, and etc. And of course, it's going to change the, the, the global circulation of, of, of money in many different uh, directions. If, if we read to Alpha City, Roland Atkinson book on the city of London, we see a lot of illegal money building the, the, the city of London. So we are not talking about marginal stuff anymore. We are really talking about something that is uh, very important. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Sorry again Thank for the mess in my presentation but I'm, I'm very happy to be with you anyway no no it was great thank you thank you all thank you very much i'd like to thank you damian julian kurt from the organization it was great to have you on board and uh, very hard stuff thank you very much thank you for listening to the oc24 podcast for more talks have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use there are loads more to listen to video versions of these talks are also available on the global initiative against transnational organized crime youtube channel if you would like to share these talks around we ask that you use the hashtag oc24 and let us know what you think the 24-hour conference on global organized crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organized Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organized Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organized Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thanks for listening.